All right. You live by technology, you die by technology. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for another day. Grateful for a completed canon of Scripture where we can uh, understand you in the fullness that you have intended us to understand you. We're thankful, Lord, that in a changing world that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We do ask that you'll be with us in our studies uh, today in Second Thessalonians and then later on in Genesis. We pray that the Holy Spirit would take truth and apply it to the needs of your people in a way that a human teacher cannot do because a human teacher cannot see all the needs that are out there, but you know what they are. And so we invite that ministry today here at Sugarland Bible Church, not just uh, in adult Sunday school, but in all the classes that are meeting. And so in preparation for that ministry, we're just going to take a few moments of silence to do personal confession before you if need be, so that we can prepare our hearts to receive from your word. Again, Lord, we're thankful for your comprehensive provision for us. We ask that your name be lifted up and glorified today at Sugarland Bible Church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, let's open our Bibles uh, this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm looking at verses 6 and 7. Paul the Apostle, having been driven out of Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, was forced uh, down south into Corinth. And it's there in Corinth that he pen the Thessalonian letters, largely based on questions that he had been asked by the Thessalonians after he had been forced out. So one of their major problems is they had received in Paul's absence a forged letter purporting to have come from Paul, but it didn't come from Paul indicating that they were actually in the day of the Lord. So verse 2 kind of frames uh, what he's doing in this paragraph that we've been studying in depth. Verse 2 refers to this forged letter. It says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, and we explained that the day of the Lord is the tribulation period, has come. So Paul had taught them that, no, um, you're living pre-rapture, and you're going to be removed from the earth through the rapture before the day of the Lord hits. The forged letter says, no, you've missed the rapture. They may have said there is no rapture for all we know, and you're actually in the tribulation period. So you can see how something of this magnitude would, would have shaken them up because it meant that everything that Paul had taught them on this matter was wrong. And by the way, the fact that they were shaken up proves that he had taught them that they would escape the tribulation period. There's no need to be shaken up if... A forged letter said you're in the tribulation period when Paul had originally said you're going through the tribulation period. So the very fact that they're upset about this and shaken up indicates that Paul had taught them pre-tribulationalism. 
you'll escape the day of the Lord through the rapture. So Paul responds to this whole situation by laying out the what we would call the prerequisites of the day of the Lord, verses 3 through 12. He lays out five. And what he's saying as he's laying these things out is he's saying, unless you see these things materializing, which you're seeing none of them, but until you see these things materialize, no one can say, you know, they're in the day of the Lord. So the very first thing he mentions is the departure. He says the departure has not happened yet. The departure, as we've tried to teach, is a synonym for the rapture. That hasn't happened. You're still here. So as long as you're still here, you could not be in the day of the Lord. Then he moves on to his second prerequisite for the day of the Lord. Second half of verse 3 into verse 4. And he talks about, how Bible prophecy predicts that the Antichrist, when he shows up, <laughs> will go into the Jewish temple and desecrate it midway through the tribulation period. And we kind of delved into the meaning of that and what's the historical precedent for that and what does that mean. And Paul's point in rehearsing this is you haven't seen that happen yet, so... You're not obviously in the day of the Lord. The third thing that he mentions is the removal of the restrainer. Verses 6 and 7, he says, you know what restrains him now, Antichrist. The guy who's going to desecrate the temple. He can't do that. He can't do anything now because there's a restrainer holding him back. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. You're not in the day of the Lord because the restrainer is still here. And the big question there is, well, what is the restrainer? And we went through a lot of the different interpretive options tried to make the case that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, the eternally existent third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And if that interpretation is right, and by the way, we think it's right, because whoever is holding back the Antichrist, he's got to be omnipotent or all-powerful because the antichrist as we're going to see in verse 9 is satan's masterpiece satan's man of the hour so whoever this restrainer is he's got to be strong enough to hold back the devil for two thousand years and the holy spirit would qualify for that since he is deity and therefore omnipotent or all-powerful And then we pointed out that, yes, the Holy Spirit has ministries in the church. The Holy Spirit has ministries in the lives of believers. But the Holy Spirit also, when you study him, has ministries in the world. He's currently doing things amongst the unsaved that the unsaved are not even aware of most of the time. So therefore, giving him this ministry of restraint, this unique ministry that he's been doing for 2,000 years, um, that would fit everything we know of the Holy Spirit. And then when you study this out carefully, um, what you see is the participle restrainer in Greek switches from neuter, verse 6, to masculine, verse 7. That becomes a wonderful description of the Holy Spirit. Because the noun for spirit is pneuma, a neuter noun. Yet Jesus frequently referred to the Holy Spirit with the masculine pronoun he or him when he talked about the Holy Spirit in the upper room. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and and judgment. And similar statements. So the switch from the neuter to the masculine accommodates the Holy Spirit view very, very nicely. 
And so what, if we're right on this, what Paul is doing in verses 6 and 7 is he's identifying the Spirit by his ministry. He has many, many ministries. For example, in Romans 8, verse 6, he's called the Spirit. It says of, of the Spirit, the Spirit is life. He gives life. He regenerates. So there the Spirit is identified by his life-giving ministry. Paul is simply doing the same thing here. He's identifying the Holy Spirit by one of his key ministries, which is to restrain or hold back the Antichrist. Why doesn't Paul just come out and say Holy Spirit? It would make life easier, wouldn't it? We'd have a lot less work to do trying to figure this out. Well, the answer to that is we're getting in on the conversation late. Paul had already laid down the foundational truths concerning prophecy to these Thessalonians when he was with them planning that church on the second missionary journey. Uh, he had already explained a lot of these things to them in the first letter. So, you know, late in the conversation, he doesn't have to restate everything. He doesn't have to restate the obvious. He says, do you not remember that, that when I was with, when I was still with you, I was telling you these things. So we pick up the conversation at that point, but the conversation has been already well in circulation earlier. And so that's why he doesn't come out and say the obvious, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have to because he's already laid down that foundation. He's just identifying the Holy Spirit by his ministry. So if all of this is true, um, it really helps cement the idea that the church has to be removed from the earth before the tribulation period takes place. And we kind of walked through this last time. Number one, the restrainer holds back the Antichrist. Number two, the restrainer is the omnipotent Holy Spirit. Number three, where does the Holy Spirit live? In the child of God for how long? Forever. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells all Christians. And so if there's coming a point where the Holy Spirit is going to remove his ministry of restraint, then all Spirit-indwelt Christians, and by the way, that's the only kind of Christian you can have, right? All spirit-indwelt Christians have to be removed before the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness even shows up. So from from there, you know, we went into some questions and answers. And these are common questions and answers that come up with this interpretation I'm giving you. If this is true... Number one, will the Holy Spirit be active during the tribulation period? Because if you're telling us his restraining ministry is going to be taken away at some point prior to the tribulation period, are you telling us that the Holy Spirit is not going to be active in the tribulation period? So will the Holy Spirit still be active during the tribulation period, although his unique ministry of restraint will cease at some point at the point of the rapture? And the answer is yes. Because what the tribulation period will be like is it will roll back to exactly how it was in the Old Testament age. Because the tribulation period, when you study it out, a 490-year clock given to Daniel, 483 years have elapsed, seven years yet remaining. The seven years that are coming are a completion of that Old Testament age. So whatever the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament age, and he was doing a lot, he's not doing what he's doing today. It's different, but he was doing a lot that ministry will continue. And that's why so many people will actually come to Christ during this tribulation period. Something that could not happen without the Holy Spirit's involvement. 
So a lot of people misunderstand the interpretation that we're giving here as we're saying the Holy Spirit stops working in the tribulation period. He does not stop working any more than he wasn't working in Old Testament times. He was working. I mean, you don't have to get far into the Old Testament to see the Holy Spirit. All you got to do is get there to verse uh, 3, I think it is. Verse 2, verse 3 of Genesis 1, where it says the Spirit was moving on the waters. So the Spirit is clearly at work in the Old Testament. He's just doing a special work today through the church, that ministry of restraint. That ministry alone will stop at the point of the rapture. But the other ministries that the Holy Spirit was doing prior to the church age will continue. Number two, should believers be politically active today? Because a lot of people will disagree with um, this interpretation that I'm giving. And they will say, you know, your view on it means we shouldn't be good stewards of our country. And, you know, after all, why, you know, rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and uh, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? And if we're, there's going to be this rapture and we're go- the world is going into this tribulation period, you know, what's the point in voting and that kind of thing? I think that is a misuse and a misunderstanding of the passage because the Lord is using the church right now as I speak not to build the kingdom, He's going to establish the kingdom instantaneously in his second advent. But he is using the church right now as I speak to hold back Antichrist. Jesus in the uh, Sermon on the Mount called us salt and light. And when you look at salt, salt is a preservative. It preserves something from corruption. So... Because we are being used this way as the restrainer, we don't have permission from God to abandon the culture. We do not teach an eschatology of abandonment here, although our detractors say that's what we're teaching. Christians should be involved in every area of life, quite frankly. Uh, Finance, art, media, education, and that would also include the political process. Any area that you go into, you bring your Judeo-Christian value system with you, right? You don't leave it at home. So why, why would it be any different with politics and voting? And when you bring your Judeo-Christian value system with you into whatever field you're in, what is happening is the Lord is using that to fulfill his ministry, he's using us to do it, fulfill his ministry of restraining the Antichrist. So this uh, is an area of confusion because a lot of people think we've got to get busy with the culture to bring in the kingdom. Um, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. We're not going to bring in any kingdom. Any attempt to bring in the kingdom is a waste of time because only, only the king can bring in the kingdom. A lot of people are out there trying to build the kingdom without the king, which doesn't make any sense. So we can't build the kingdom. What we can do, though, is slow down the progress of evil. So the eschatology that we're teaching here is not antithetical to cultural engagement. Number three, can we identify the Antichrist today? No. Because the Antichrist cannot even come forward onto the world scene until the restrainer is removed via the rapture. See that? So any attempt to finger the Antichrist, point out to who the Antichrist is, is a waste of time. Um, I gave you, I think last time, I don't have it here, but I gave you the quote from Irenaeus, who's one generation removed from John, the apostle. And in his book, Against Heresies, he condemns, or maybe a better word is, he criticizes the Christians of his day who all thought they knew who the Antichrist was. 
Now, this would be A.D. 180. Christians were getting involved in this kind of speculation. And uh, Irenaeus writes, if John wanted us to know who the Antichrist is, he would have announced his name in the Apocalypse, which was written at the end of Domitian's reign, A.D. 95. So if we're supposed to know who the Antichrist is, Irenaeus says, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, would have given us a name, but he never did. So forget all of this uh, speculation of who the Antichrist is. Instead, pursue the, the mission God has given you, which is the restraint of evil. But even be above and beyond that is the Great Commission. So can we identify the Antichrist today? No. Number four. And this is where we left off last time. So that was just my introduction there. Number four, has Satan selected an antichrist for every generation? Answer, yes. And it relates to the fact that Satan is a created being. As a created being, he is not omniscient. He does not know everything. And because he does not know everything, he does not know the exact point in time in which the restrainer will be removed via the rapture. He doesn't know that date. So to hedge his bets, he's always had someone, an antichrist, in every generation ready to go. Should this be the generation where the restrainer is removed? Now, in Ezekiel 28, verses 13 through 15, which I'm understanding as a prefigurement or an influencer of the king of Babylon, leading to the king of Babylon's fall. But in the process, Ezekiel sees the angelic force behind the king of Babylon. And in the process, I think he starts to describe Satan. And he gives us insight into Satan's fall. Satan, originally a cherub, lifted up with pride. First comes pride, then comes a fall. And he lost his position in the heavenlies because of it. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 17. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. Communicate that. But in the process, Ezekiel tells us that Satan was a created being. So he says in verse 13 concerning Satan, this cherub, this angelic force motivating the king of Babylon... He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. See, that's obviously a force beyond the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon was never in Eden. And I may may have mixed this up. Isaiah 14 is the king of Babylon. This is the king of Tyre. Both human rulers, very arrogant. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was covering you, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond. And it lists all of these different colors right down to the emerald. So Satan comes as an angel of light. He's he's very beautiful. It goes on and it says the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. And then Ezekiel says this, on the day you were created, they were prepared for you. And the moment Ezekiel uses the word created, we say to ourselves, game over. Satan is nothing more than a created being. He is not God's rival. In fact, the only reason God keeps Satan around is to accomplish God's own purposes. God throughout the Bible will use Satan for his own purposes. And once those purposes have run their course, then he will be hurled into the lake of fire. So the devil very much is is God's devil. And we know that because of this word created. 
And then it repeats it in verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And the moment we're told that Satan is a created being is the moment we learn he doesn't have the attributes of God because there are some attributes that God doesn't share or else God wouldn't be God. Those are the omnis, right? Omniscience, all-knowing. Omnipotence, all-powerful. Omnipresent, everywhere at once. Satan has none of those. He would like to have them. He's lusting after those things, but those things are not his. And because he was created, he lacks omniscience. He is not all-knowing. So he does not know the specific point in time in which the restrainer is going to be removed. He doesn't know. So in every generation, he's had someone waiting in the wings as the lawless, potential lawless one who will fulfill the role of Antichrist when the restrainer is removed. So as you go through the last 2,000 years of church history, this is why you have so many people that show up on the scene that look like they could easily be the Antichrist. Uh, Think of all of the world rulers, you know, Adolf Hitler, um, Mussolini, you know, Nero back in biblical times. Um, dare I say we've had some American presidents that almost look like they're auditioning for the job or something. They, they seem so anti-Christ-like, you know, in the stuff that they say. It's like, wow, that person would be a terrific antichrist. And And maybe they are. Maybe that's the person Satan has handpicked. Should this be the generation where the restrainer is removed? But but Satan doesn't know any more than we know when the rapture is going to happen. So he's always had somebody waiting in the wings. This is why Second Thessalonians two verses three and seven says this. Back to our passage. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, that's the Antichrist, that will make his debut onto the world scene once the restrainer is removed. But verse 7 says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Paul says the man of lawlessness is coming. The man of lawlessness will make his debut once the restrainer is removed via the rapture. But even right now, Paul says, when you look at verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, that was 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote that. In other words, long before the man of lawlessness shows up, the devil is at work in the world through what Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness. What does that even mean? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's it's Satan hedging his bets, shaping the world in such a direction, having the right guy on the scene at the right time when he's limited uh, by the fact that he doesn't know everything. So should the restrainer be removed in this generation, Satan says to himself, I'm ready to go. I've got my guy in place. I've got my world system in place. And all I need is for the Lord to take these handcuffs off me via the removal of the restrainer, and my guy's ready to go. And he's been working that way for 2,000 years. That's what Paul is talking about when he says the man of lawlessness is coming. But even right now, as I speak, Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. You have a similar kind of statement by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. It says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard 
that is coming. So he's talking about a spirit of the Antichrist and how that's going to be epitomized one day by the Antichrist, which John says, I've told you he's coming. But then John throws in this little expression here at the end and now is already in the world. So long before the actual Antichrist shows up, the spirit of the Antichrist will be in the world. John said that spirit exists right now when he wrote these words 2,000 years ago. What does that mean? It means that the devil who does not have omniscience and does not know when the rapture is going to take place has everything worked out in every generation. He's got his man picked. He's got the world system moving in a particular way so that should this be the generation where the restrainer is removed... I'm ready to go. And Satan has been doing that for 2,000 years. And he has to do it that way because he doesn't know exactly when the rapture will transpire. There's a similar statement that John makes in 1 John 2, verse 18. He says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So long before you get the antichrist, John says there are already many antichrists in the world. So one day you're going to get the Papa Antichrist. After the restrainer is taken away. But before that happens, you've got the baby antichrists. They're ready to go. They're going to become baby antichrists to adult antichrists any moment when the restraint is taken away. And so you shouldn't look at Bible prophecy as just something that happens in the future. It's actually happening right now by way of preparation. Antichrists have come and gone in world history many, many times. And and had they lived in the generation where the restraint was taken away, Satan would have put his hand on that person and said, go for it. Will the Holy Spirit be active during the tribulation period? Yes. Should believers be politically active today? Yes. Just like you would be in any other area of the culture. Can we identify the Antichrist, this the Antichrist, this side of the rapture? No. Has Satan selected an Antichrist for every generation? Yes. And I've tried to give you the verses that I think communicate that. Fifth question, will an Antichrist one day arise? Yes. He is spelled out in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 16 through 18, um, through what is called the Mark of the Beast passage. John writes concerning the Antichrist. I mean, this is the guy that comes after the restrainer is removed. He causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves, free and the slaves. So, so his rule encompasses the world. That helps you understand why there's such a push in our world towards globalism, one-worldism. It's just stage setting for what's coming. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the, uh, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on, uh, I think the Greek there is epi, upon, not in, but on, their right hand or their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So some sort of system comes into existence where you receive something on your forehead or your, what does it say, your right hand. And unless you receive it, 
by swearing allegiance to the Antichrist, you can't participate in the global economy. Oh no, pastor at my work, they're making me, you know, get this card and do this or that. Uh, don't worry about it. I mean, worry about it for other reasons, but this, that is not this. That is preparatory for this. But this is something completely unique because the people in this time period that receive this are volitionally rejecting Jesus. And they are swearing their allegiance to the Antichrist system. So this system is not up and running presently, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how our world is being prepped for this system, right? With the advent of all of this kind of tattoo-type technology and cash is being phased out, the push towards central bank digital currencies and things of that nature where everybody's transactions are reduced electronically to something you can look at so you can determine everybody's buying behavior. You can't do that with cash, but with electronic transactions you can do that. And if people aren't woke enough or they're not... They go to the wrong church, read the wrong kinds of books, listen to too many sermons from Sugarland Bible Church. <clears throat> They're kind of locked out of the system. So that's what's coming. That's what's happening in our world now by way of preparation. But you shouldn't mistake the preparations for the actual mark of the beast system, which won't be up and running until after the restrainer is removed. And then verse 18 says, here is wisdom, Sophia. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I believe that this is speaking of what's called gematria. Gematria is kind of foreign to the Western mind, but it was very common in biblical times, where ancient languages, particularly Greek and Hebrew, the languages that our Bible was written in, to every letter you could connect a number. So every Hebrew letter had a number, every Greek letter had a number. That's called uh, gematria. And so what this is saying is the world is going to know exactly who the Antichrist is because when he shows up, you will be able to take his name because it mentions there his name, doesn't it? The number of his name. You'll be able to take his name. You'll be able to spell it out in Greek because John is writing to a Greek-speaking audience. You'll be able to pull out this chart here. You'll be able to attach the right number to the right letter. You'll be able to add up the digits, and it will yield the total 666. That's how the whole world at that time will know exactly who the Antichrist is. And if they don't know, they could easily know. So you have these people, like the late R.C. Sproul, for example, who was trying to tell everybody that Nero was the Antichrist in his book, The Last Days According to Jesus. R.C. Sproul was a preterist. He basically believed that most of Bible prophecy had already happened. It's not tabloid gossip. It's just a matter of looking at his book, <laughs> The Last Days According to Jesus, and reading it, which I've done because I wrote my master's thesis on why Nero is not the Antichrist. So I had to read all this stuff. And so for R.C. Sproul, and he's largely getting it from a guy named Kenneth Gentry, for R.C. Sproul to make it sound as if Nero was the Antichrist, he had to not work the number in Greek. He had to work it out in Hebrew. And then, and even then, it didn't spell 666, so he had to throw in the title. Caesar Nero, 
in Hebrew to get this to work. And I'm here to tell you that Nero could have been the Antichrist, but he was not the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist, when he shows up, you're going to be able to take his name. You don't have to fiddle around with the title at all. And you'll be able to spell out his name not in Hebrew, because John was not writing to a Hebrew audience. He was writing to the Greek-speaking churches of Asia Minor, Revelation 2 and 3. You'll be able to take his name, spell it out in Greek. You won't have to fudge the data at all and throw in the title, and it will yield the total 666. And so there is coming a person that's going to fit this exactly. In fact, one night I got a little nervous. I woke up in the middle of the night and my wife said, what's the matter? And I said, maybe I'm the Antichrist. So I went and grabbed this chart and I spelled out my name in Greek and put in the right numbers for each letter and added them all up. And fortunately, it didn't come out to 666. So I breathed a sigh of relief, went back to bed. Those are, the weird, those are the weird stuff that goes through your head when you do too much research in something specific. And there have been other people I thought were the Antichrist, and I've tried the same thing, and they're not the Antichrist either. But there is coming someone, once the restrainer is removed, who will fit this to a T. See that? Everybody else that's come on the scene, Nero, Hitler, whoever, they're little antichrists. Maybe somehow they could have been the antichrist had the restrainer been removed, but it wasn't the right time. But once the restrainer is removed, there is coming upon the scene an actual antichrist whose name will fit the number of the beast, 666. So what is Paul talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 2? where they are panicking that they're in the day of the Lord. He's saying you're not in the day of the Lord. Because number one, you're still here. Number three, because you're still here, the restrainer is still here. And because the restrainer is still here, number two, the Antichrist can't even show up. That's that's Paul's point in taking him through this. Then he takes them to a fourth area that they haven't seen yet. And that's not just the advent of the Antichrist. It's the destruction of the Antichrist. <clears throat> so notice Second Thessalonians 2. Look at verse 8. Then, see the sequence here? The lawless one will be revealed. Then after what? After verses 6 and 7. After the restrainer is taken away. Then the Antichrist will be revealed. Here Paul calls him the lawless one. By the way, um, this word revealed, the lawless one will be revealed, is the same uh, word that we get the book of Revelation from, apocalypsis. I think here it's in the verb form coming from the same root. But the unveiling, that's what the book of Revelation is, the unveiling, the disclosure. So what Paul is dealing with in verse 8 is the actual disclosure of the Antichrist. He is going to be unleashed. He is going to be unleashed after the restrainer, verses 6 and 7, is removed. And it's his name converted to Greek using Greek gematria will yield the total 666. And this will not happen until after the rapture. That's Paul's point. Do you see how he's sort of cycled back to ideas that he's brought up in verse 1? Now we request you, brethren, in regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. Our gathering to him is speaking of the rapture. 
And so he's explaining how the rapture has to happen before this lawless one can be unleashed. But once the rapture happens and the restrainer is removed, he will come upon the scene. He will be revealed at exactly the right time. But he's a defeated foe. He's defeated out of the gate. Now, you know he's defeated out of the gate because he's Satan's masterpiece. And Satan, we saw from the Ezekiel passage, is just a created being. Because Satan is just a created being, he doesn't have omniscience and he doesn't have omnipotence. He is not all-powerful. So not only does the Bible anticipate the Antichrist coming forward, but it also equally anticipates the sudden defeat of the Antichrist. Yes, he gets his day in the sun, but it won't last long. This is the problem of Christians studying the doctrine of the Antichrist outside of the attributes of God. Because if all you're going to do is study the Antichrist and you're going to exclude the attributes of God in the process, you're just going to be overwhelmed by evil. But when you see evil in the context of the attributes of God and the fact that the devil is God's devil, you say to yourself, well, praise the Lord. God's got this whole situation under control. That's why for us as Christians in this age to walk around with defeat, fear, anxiety, and intrepidation is unbalanced. Yes, be aware of these things, be sober about them, but don't let it emotionally control your life where you're just beaten down because all you're studying is evil, evil, evil constantly. It's important to know about the progress of evil, but it's equally important to analyze the progress of evil against the backdrop of God's attributes. Because Satan is created, he's no match for God. God has this whole thing under control. So our our message to the world is a realistic message, but it's a message of hope and optimism. Then the lawless one will be revealed, and look how fast he's defeated, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The Antichrist is a defeated foe just like Satan is a defeated foe. His demise is predicted in Daniel 9.27. This is what the Antichrist is going to do when he, after the restrainer is removed. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put an end to to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, Terrible stuff, but there's more to this verse. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, who decreed it? God, who is omnipotent, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Yeah, the desolator is going to do his desolation, but upon him is going to come sudden destruction, not even... Gradual destruction, but sudden destruction. Here it says complete, comprehensive. Because it's God who's decreed his end. The devil is God's God's devil. So the Antichrist will enter into a covenant with Israel after the restrainer is removed. He'll launch a final seven years of Daniel's clock, which has been on hiatus ever since... Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. He'll desecrate the temple midway through the tribulation period. Terrible stuff, but it's not going to last long because three and a half years after the desecration of the temple, Jesus is coming back and he will suddenly overthrow the Antichrist. won't even be a battle. 
it's sort of anticlimactic, really, when you read Revelation 19. Because it talks about the armies of the earth, you know, gathering against the Lord as he's coming back on this white horse. And you kind of get the impression that there's going to be a, a, a war of some kind, and there's not even a war. It's just all the enemies die. The Antichrist gets his day in the sun, but he only has his day in the sun for 42 months. Revelation 13 verse 5 says, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. That would be, I think, the second half of the tribulation period was given to him. So here's Satan all this time has been plotting this overthrow of God, this new world order, moving the world into the right place, putting the pieces together, having an antichrist ready in every generation, and all he gets is a lousy 42 months. I mean, it shows you how much more powerful God is than the devil is. And we would expect that the moment we see the word created. In the day you were created. Revelation 18 verse 8 describes the destruction of the Antichrist system. It says, for this reason in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Satan's system comes down in a day. He gets 42 months, but the whole thing comes down in a day. And it's not even going to take a whole day. Because Revelation 8 is followed by Revelation 18, verse 8, is followed by verse 10, right? Same chapter. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city For in one hour, your judgment has come. One verse says a day. The next verse says, ah, it's not even going to take a complete day, by the way. It's going to, it's going to happen in an hour. It's how fast the whole thing crumbles. And what will replace it is the kingdom of Jesus, which will never end. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest upon his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end. This is the kingdom that Jesus is establishing one day. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and unrighteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Hebrews 12 verse 28 says we are inheritors of a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So in this life, I guess we have a choice. We can either, what did Jesus talk about? You can either build your house on sand or on rock. You align your life with the new world order and the value system of the Antichrist. Talk about a bad investment. It's a house built on the sand. Why not build that house on the rock? This coming kingdom that we are inherited, inheriting that cannot be shaken. That, that's, that's where I want to put my investments. Cause that's what's going to last. The Bible tells me Antichrist gets 42 months. It also tells me Jesus gets forever. And once Christ's kingdom comes, it can't be shaken, but the Antichrist kingdom is destroyed in an hour. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought you said it was going to last a thousand years. It is. But that's just the front porch. It's like the front porch is not your house, right? 
the front porch leads you into the house. The front porch is great. You will not be disappointed with anything during the thousand years. But after the thousand years is over, it gets better. Because we move from the thousand years uh, into the eternal state. Now, what does this mean here? Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. What does it mean when it says Jesus is going to slay the lawless one once he is revealed after the restrainer has been taken away with the breath of his mouth? That's a very strange way of communicating until you factor in Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4 says, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And look at this. He will strike the earth. This is millennial. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So he's speaking, and the Antichrist is overthrown. It's not even hand-to-hand combat. He just gives the command. Maybe the command is dropped dead. I don't know what the command is. But he gives it, and the guy's dead on the spot. This becomes the meaning of the sharp sword coming out of Christ's mouth when he comes back in his second advent. Revelation 19, verse 15 says, this is a second Advent passage. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now, from... Whenever I can remember, I I recall people not believing in literal interpretation, trying to get us to explain this verse. You believe the Bible is literal. Do you really think a sword is going to be coming from Christ's mouth when he comes back? I mean, come on. Well, the truth of the matter is there is expressions in the book of Revelation that are literal, and there are expressions that are figurative. This is an obvious figurative expression. How do I know that? Because I have Isaiah 11, verse 4 in my Bible. Which says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So the sword coming out of his mouth is not an actual physical sword, but it's God's word. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, do we know something about The Bible, God's word being analogized to a sword? Sure, Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So obviously the sword is the word We have precedent for that from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. So we don't have to be ridiculed into making people think we believe an actual sword is coming out of his mouth. And that's how you handle the book of Revelation. Generally, you take things at face value. Unless there's something obvious from the context or something obvious from the Old Testament indicating that a figure of speech is in play. The problem, though, with people is they take statements that are intended to be literal and they make them figurative. So there's two extremes to stay out of here. Not recognizing figurative speech when it's obvious or turning everything into a figure of speech. Both errors are wrong-headed. You interpret Revelation 
just like you would any other part of the Bible. It's just in Revelation, it's a little more difficult because you have more symbols to deal with. But anywhere in the Bible, including the book of Revelation, you're taking it literal unless something in the context alerts you to do otherwise. Because Revelation is leaning heavily on Old Testament prophecy like Isaiah, I think I have permission to take the sword there as the word of God coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And then we'll pick it up with verse 9 next time. We're going to see very clearly that the devil can perform miracles. Not on the same par as God, of course, but boy, he can put on a show. And we'll see that next time. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word. It's, um, it's power. Uh, I ask that you'll minister these things to our hearts as we seek to live for you this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.